Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Great to be back, guys. What a summer. I took a few weeks off there to move the family to Dallas, Texas, and we are officially here. Went on a few trips and in between interviewed Cal Penn. So, you know, the usual. But honestly, feels good to be back. Feels good to start our fall season. And as many of you know, India just celebrated 75 years of independence. So I thought it would be fantastic to chat with one of India's most highly acclaimed writers, Suketu Mehta, and talk to him about his thoughts on the India he knew when he was a child and the India he knows today. Suketu Mehta is the New York-based author of Maximum City, Bombay Lost and Found, which was a finalist for the 2005 Pulitzer Prize. His work has been published in, I mean, The New Yorker, The New York Times, National Geographic, you name it. He has also written original screenplays for films such as New York, I Love You and Mission Kashmir. His latest book, This Land is Our Land, An Immigrant's Manifesto, talks about the main reasons why people immigrate and how immigrants have literally built this country. It was a fantastic conversation and such an honor to talk to him. Please enjoy my interview with... Suketu Mehta. I was, you know, just uh, reading, you had just written an article. So we just celebrated India independence, 75 years. Um, happy, happy Independence Day. And you just, you wrote something, you wrote an article, um, just I think this week got published, you basically mentioned that things in India are more dire than we realize and that India remaining a democracy for all its citizens is so crucial. And it's so interesting what you wrote. And I, if you don't mind, can you talk to me more about that article, why you wrote it, and then your thoughts on what's going on in India? Sure. So uh, for India's 75th anniversary, um, a group of uh, 113 of India's best known writers, half of them from India, half, half of them who are living in India and half uh, diaspora writers. We got together, a few of us at Penn asked these writers to just express their thoughts about, you know, what's going on in India. So it's everyone from Salman Rushdie to Jumpa Lahiri, um, Abraham Varghese, uh, Amit Chaudhary, Vijay Sechadri. We have Booker winners, we have Kulitzer winners. And most importantly, we have people writing in Indian languages, in Gujarati, in Bengali, you know, in Konkani, uh, writers that most of the world is not aware of, as well as household names. And everyone responded to this, well, first of all, with love. And I say in my introduction to the anthology, this was written as an act of love. I love India. I am deeply Indian. You can hear it in my accent. I was born in India. I left India at 14, but I went back to write my book, Maximum City, to live there. I go every year, sometimes I go four times a year. So, you know, um, we all have this very strong connection to India and then this love for India. And I begin the int introduction with what India has achieved in the last 75 years, which is incredible. I mean, uh, right after independence in 1947, there were all these predictions 
India will never stay together as a country. It's just got too many different languages, ethnicities, religions, and the whole thing's going to fall apart. It'll become balkanized, you know, like the Balkans in yeah. Yugoslavia. Well, Yugoslavia split apart, but India did not. Right. So we achieved that. We achieved unity. The second thing we achieved was keeping the army out of politics. So unlike Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Nigeria, Indonesia, any of these countries that achieved independence uh, in the 40s, um, almost all of them uh, saw this cycle of coups and counter coups and if you would have elections, someone uh, would, would get elected, the army would step in. The Indian army has never interfered in national politics. So that's right. another thing. The third was that we made huge strides in things like abolishing famine. Uh, and that's thanks to a free press. Uh, the economist Amartya Sen points out that during the same period, the Great Leap Forward, 20 million people died in China in the 1960s, and India almost abolished famine. Why? The difference with the free press. In China, because there's no free press, people would die in large numbers in the countryside and no one would ever hear about it. Right. In India, you know, people in a village would die of starvation in rural Orissa or Madhya Pradesh. The newspapers would write about it in the local languages. It would come to the state capital and then parliament questions would be raised. The government would be forced to do something about it, right? Right. So freedom of speech, a free press literally saves lives. And we did that in India. Okay, these are the accomplishments. The reason we wrote this is I believe that India is undergoing the greatest threat to its democracy um, uh, since uh, independence in the last 75 years. And the threat is this, that there are lots of people who think that India should be a Hindu country. And they say, right. you know, people have told me, look, if Saudi Arabia can be a Muslim country or Pakistan can be a Muslim country, or I don't know, uh, some of the Scandinavian countries are officially Christian countries, why can't be a, India be a Hindu country? Well, the only officially Hindu country in the world today is Nepal. The reason India has survived and thrived is because we're not a Hindu country, we're not a Muslim country. It's not that we are a secular country. The constitution uh, uh, allows for the free exercise of all religions and it lets each religion worship in its own way. But what we're seeing now is that the present government and increasing numbers of Indians, like my own family, I'm Gujarati, think that. Yes, I'm here. India should be, you know, um, it belongs to the Hindus and the Muslims. They can live here, but they have to live by our rules or the Christians or, you know. India has 200 million Muslims. It's the world's third largest Muslim country. By 2050, it'll be the largest Muslim country in the world. These are people who they didn't come from outside. They were born there. The forefathers were born there. They just chose which God to worship. Right. And during partition, they voted with their feet. These Muslims in India did not go to Pakistan. Um, they did not go to what is now Bangladesh. They stayed in India and they built a nation. And, you know, of course, there have been problems and this is not unique to the BJP. The same, many of the same issues, uh, freedom of the press uh, and the Congress. But now it's really, I think, kind of reached a crescendo. And that right. has me very worried as someone who deeply believes in Indian democracy. Yes. And my friends, the same sort of thing. So it's written as an act of love to say, you know, we have to keep India as a country where Hindus may be the dominant religion, but it's not the only religion. And right. all religions 
are free to practice. And in fact, even atheists are free to be atheists. It's a democracy. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's democracy. Yes. And that's yeah. why, you know, India has, you know, and that's why we are respected all over the world. Our tech companies, our talent, you know, Indians have a good reputation, right? We're like world's largest democracy, people keep saying. But that's on the challenge now because there's increasing persecution of journalists, of activists. Um, there is this, you know, in Bollywood, I know some of my personal friends, they've had, they've been audited, they've been harassed. Um, and, and there is this idea that uh, India is a Hindu country. All other religions live there by Hindu sufferings. And I totally, completely object to this. Well, it goes against everything that we as Indians are supposed to stand for, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, and he wrote this this one sentence, this article. He said, "As goes India, so goes democracy," which yes. I, which I thought was very powerful. So hopeful, worried about the future of India, both mix of things, or is this just you know, is India reflective of what's going on around the world right now? Yeah. So all around the world, democracy is. You know, people are beginning to seriously question democracy. So the 20th century saw an expansion of democracy in country after country. People believed in things like freedom of speech, human rights, equality for women, LGBTQ rights. It was on the upswing in, right. you know, country after country. It, there's now a turning back, whether it's Russia, Brazil, India, Turkey, the United States. You know, the U.S. also is seeing the greatest threats to its democracy since its founding. The exactly. 70 million people who voted for Trump and wide wager, at least half of them believe that the last election was stolen. So this is a huge threat to democracy when people don't believe in the peaceful transfer of power, right? India, you know, the world can't afford to lose India uh, as a democracy because it's such a powerful example to other countries, you know? Yeah. And if democracy goes here, then it'll go everywhere. And then we'll have the sad spectacle of ethno-nationalist states all over the world. You know, people will organize their states on the basis of religion or language or party affiliation or tribe. And, you know, COVID has taught us one thing. We need to stay united to fight. We need each other. We need each other. That's coming, yeah. Yeah. And in India, I mean, the challenges are, in the next 75 years, are even bigger than the last 75 years. This year, temperatures in Delhi reached 120 degrees Fahrenheit. You will be cooked if yeah. you step outside yeah. uh, in the afternoon. And these every year it gets hotter. So by the middle of the century, New Delhi will be uninhabitable. Large numbers of people in northern India, Pakistan, Bangladesh will no longer be able to live where they are. They'll have to move. I mean, wow. there's just uh, at the same time, in India, um, half of the population is under the age of 25. So it's got a very large youth population and they don't have jobs. Only yeah. 36% of the working age population is employed. Right? What's, so what's going there. on there? You mentioned that in your article as well. And I was shocked by that number. Yeah. So while the Indian economy has progressed, um, there's also a huge issue with employment. Uh, okay. That is, you know, much of the employment is government employment, right? I mean, it, and the government employs large numbers of people in, for example, the army or the railways, but it's trying to cut down. So there was recently uh, this proposal by the government to have these conditional contracts for people who join the armed forces. They, they aren't assured 
uh, of a job for life. It's like, you know, five years or something. Um, and there was a hue and cry because, you know, we, we think of India as having this booming tech sector, but the tech sector only employs like a few million people at best. And the biggest uh, employer of Indian still is agriculture. But, you know, with machines and so forth, there still isn't enough demand or the people who like these tenant farmers, they can't make a living just farming. So right. India has got to find uh, ways of employing this um, uh, very large youth population uh, that is actually, it's also getting better and better educated. So for example, I'll give you a story. I was in rural Uttar Pradesh this last March and okay. I was speaking to people in the villages about the UP election. And I'm speaking to all these young people who had actually been really impressively well educated. I mean, they'd gone to not just um, high school, but also college, you know, they, they'd gone to colleges in the rural, you know, whatever the nearest provincial town was. And they came back with degrees in, um, you know, basic programming or um, uh, commerce or things, and they came back to the village. They can't get jobs, but they're also too well educated to uh, be part of, of the villages. But they can't go back to the labor force, so they're neither here nor there. And right. any country that has a massive youth population like this, um, which doesn't have jobs, I mean, that is a recipe for trouble. Right. So climate change and unemployment are two of the biggest challenges facing India in the next 75 years. And we need to be united. We can't be fighting each other on religious lines over past historical injustices. You know, what did Aurangzeb do or what did Babur do or what did the Portuguese do? You know, it's been done. We need to move on to the future rather than just continuously go back over past invasions. It's a, it's like it feels like the whole world is going backwards. <laughs> I can't think yeah. of a, another word for it. Like it just feels so insane that there was all this progress this past fifty years in in so many places, and then all of a sudden, uh, it, it's unexplainable um, and a little scary. So, um, yeah, and it's scary because you know, people are losing faith in democracy. Yeah, and it's based on fake news and fake facts. And I think lots of anger and volatility due to many different big events that have happened around the world, obviously, including the pandemic. Um, and so just, it's like all these things have come together to a boil in a way, you know? That's right. It'd be very remiss of me, not to mention Salman Rushdie. I know you talked, just mentioned his name as well. Um, he obviously paid a price for his courage uh, sadly. Um, and, you know, we also, you also just talked about freedom of press, freedom of speech. So, you know, it just seems like nowadays there is a fear amongst, you know, journalists, writers, artists, creatives to express themselves without retribution some, from somehow, someone, something. How have you handled what it seems like such a, it seems like such a volatile environment anywhere you go. How have you handled that as an art, as a writer? Sure. So you mentioned Salman Rushdie, and he's a close personal friend. He's been a friend for many years. Uh, I'm in touch with his family. You know, when the news broke, I mean, I was just praying to all my 300 million gods to right. just live. He was just, I mean, uh, I can't imagine 
you've been such a big part of my life in New York. Uh, we have the, he teaches with me at NYU at NYU journalism. Okay, um, and um, he's such a brave man for doing what he does. And completely, you know, uh, all these years he's been out and about um, speaking in public. And now this thing happens in upstate New York, where you know, no one was expecting it, obviously. And um, the good news is that you know he's alive, he's joking, he's in good spirits. Okay. Um, uh, he is not gone, but he has really horrific injuries, and there's going to be a long period of rehab again. But his brain is intact, so okay. he's going to be writing more than ever. Thank God. Um, and you know he is—he's uh, kind of my hero in so many ways. He will take on any religion that persecutes writers. If you are a persecuted writer anywhere in the world, you have no better friend than Sir Salman Rushdie. He's literally your brown knight who will come riding to your rescue. That's amazing. Uh, there were all these people in India saying, look, you know, the violent Muslims, they killed, they, they uh, passed this fatwa on Salman and killed his translators, and now they're trying to stab him. But Salman wrote a piece in our anthology uh, making the same point that it's you know it's not just Muslims it's also Hindus and in other countries it's Christians that there is no there's no Islam exception for free speech I, I believe that you know you should be able to call every religion to account right um, but it's not just Muslims that are doing these things in the United States um, many of the terror attacks most of them actually have come from right wing uh, often very Christian groups, militias. Um, right. Uh, so it, in Sri Lanka, I, I've been to Sri Lanka nine times and written about the Tamil Tigers. Well, you had Hindu and Catholic suicide bombers. Right. Uh, so it's it's an issue with people who, you know, their religion isn't my religion. I, I'm a Hindu. I, uh, I, I'm very proud of my religion. I have a, a, a mandir at home. I pray twice a day. My religion gives me great spiritual solace. Right. But my Hinduism is, you know, a happy, joyful celebration of life. Right. It's not fearful and inward looking and hateful. Right. Um, and my religion has space for every god. Right. Um, 300, so, 300 million. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What's one or two more? Like, yeah. Bring it on. Yeah, <laughs> of course. We accept yeah. all. Yeah. And so Salman, uh, I mean, Salman is not at all religious, but he did not hate Muslims. I remember having a chat with him uh, right uh, after 9-11, where uh, there was this proposal to build uh, an Islamic center on the ground where the World Trade Center is. And a lot of people were opposed to this. And Salman stood up for this Islamic center. He said, no, I mean, if uh, Christians are allowed to build a church there, then Muslims should be allowed to build an Islamic center. He stood right. up for Islam. Right. Um, so he's my hero in so many ways. And freedom of speech, you know, he is, he was instrumental in PEN, the writer's organization. Uh, and we, as a storyteller, um, I believe that we have to be able to tell stories better. All over the world, there are these populists like Trump, like Modi, like Bolsonaro in Brazil, like Putin in Russia, like Orban in Hungary. Uh, and what is a populist? A populist is a gifted storyteller. He can tell a false story well. Right. So Trump's story about the United States is, 
this is a white Christian nation and you know everyone else uh, has to live by our rules and the whites are getting that's the story it's mm-hmm. false it's false in India the story that Modi is spreading is that this is a Hindu country and you know uh, other religions, Muslims, Christians, there are many that are converting us. It is statistically not true. I mean, these are right. factually not true. Right. But it's a compelling story because it's got emotion and passion. Right. The only way the populists can be fought is by telling a true story better. Yeah. Right. So the story we are telling is that India is the country that its founding fathers can research, that it is uh, a, a country which is welcoming of all in the Hindu scriptures. There's this wonderful phrase, Vasudhaiva Kutumbakam, yeah. which is the whole world is a family. Yeah. And also, there's another phrase uh, which says, "Let good thoughts come to us from all sides." Yeah. Um, so, and that's always been the genius of India that it's it's taken in knowledge, uh, worship from all over, accepted um, all, yes, embraced all. Yeah. But we have to be able to tell this story well. And right. I think too often the storytellers have retreated to the universities, uh, to think tanks, and we only speak to each other. We yeah. are kind of, you know, uh, preaching to the converted, and that's not good enough. We have to go out and engage with people who disagree with us. So, you know, I went on the Dinesh D'Souza show. Dinesh D'Souza is a guy who is very, very conservative, and you know, none of my liberal friends in New York like him, but. He asked me to come on his show to talk about immigration. My last book is about immigration. Yep. He is fervently against, like a lot of migration to America. He uh, believes that you know these people coming in from the southern border should be kept out. I, I disagree vehemently, but I went on his show to disagree with him. Good. And ninety percent of the reactions were hostile to me because his show is full of like really hardcore conservatives. But ten percent of them said it's brave of this guy to come on. And it's very rare to see a liberal on this show. Yeah. So I believe liberals and conservatives should be talking to each other. We have to. So that's the only way. Family. Yeah. That's the only way. And you and you got that ten percent. You know that was worth it. You know that ten percent to listen to listen even. Exactly that ten percent. Dinesh Tisuza's ten percent. And if he comes on any of the shows that you know I'm on, and maybe my ten percent will agree with something of what Dinesh says. That's fine. Yes. But then that ten, his 10% and my 10%, this is where democracy can exist. Right. And survive. That Venn diagram, that intersection of yep. me listening to these guys and saying, listen, I don't agree with you on immigration or abortion or free speech, but maybe there's something about, you know, government needs to spend money responsibly or about uh, foreign wars or, you know, whatever it is. Like yeah. this, this is common ground. And maybe they listen to me and say, okay, this is common ground. That is where the dialogue begins. And I think the issue with all these countries is that people aren't talking to each other. No we one's listening. No one's listening to each other. Yeah. We speak in our Facebook groups. We speak, uh, you know, our Twitter timeline. And with tech being the way it is, we're turning away from, it used to be in America, when I first came to the country, we'd all gather at dinner time and listen to the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite, like much of the country. And Walter yep. Cronkite in his avuncular way would kind of gather much of America around the dinner table and give us the news. Right? right. No one like that exists today. Nothing. We all have completely different sources of information. Yep. And so it's easy to stay in our bubbles and just not talk to each other. 
And the bubbles, everyone's in a bubble and these bubbles are just getting stronger and stronger, you know, and, and people are choosing to just, they, it, it's hard to leave the bubbles, right? It's comfortable to stay in your bubble. And so they're not, no one's challenging themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting to see in the next 10, 15 years, how this all plays out. I'm very glad that Mr. Rushdie is doing better. So that's really good to hear. So I want to talk to you a little bit about your childhood. I know you were born in Kolkata and then you're Gujarati as I am uh, and raised in. So do you, do you call it Bombay or Mumbai? What, what do you prefer? Um, so, you know, uh, as, as you probably know, uh, yeah. if we, in Gujarati and uh, Marathi, we call it Mumbai. Yep. In English, we call it Bombay. Right. In Hindi, we call it Bombay. Yeah. Um, and the city is big enough. It's got a big enough heart that it doesn't care what you call it. Right. But I like that. Bombay, Mumbai, Mum, it just depends on the language. When I'm right. speaking to my friend Ashish, so like, oh, Bombay kab ja Yeah. And um, when I'm speaking to, you know, uh, my uh, Rohit Masa, I said, who Mumbai jane abhi ashwamra. And it's, it doesn't matter what you call it. You know, I object to anyone demanding that we call it Mumbai in right. all our language. Right. I love the answer because I, I flip back and forth as well. Um, so you obviously raised in, in Bombay and then you moved to the New York area in 77. So you've been in the New York area for a long time. One of your fondest memories of growing up in Bombay? Oh, eating Bhelpuri on Chopati. <laughs> so good. It's so street good. Food, uh, and so much of, you know, like proofed uh, began a remembrance of things past this, you know, many thousand page novel. Right. It's a little cookie that his mom would give him. And when he eats that cookie, his entire childhood comes alive before his eyes. Um, right. The food is so strongly linked with, with childhood and, you know, just the, the eating the they had these sandwiches that you would get with the crusts cut off of this white bread with so, the chutney. The chutney sandwiches are so good. <laughs> and my parents would forbid me to eat, you know, on the street because, you know, it was bad and the, 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 all the bhaiya would drip perspiration on the charts. And, but I, I couldn't help it. Like every time after school, I would sneak out to eat the bhel puri and the sandwiches and the pani puri and... Uh, and the palm bhaji, and so when I go back, I still, you know, that's the first thing I do. I make a beeline for it. That's awesome. Um, uh, and, and can so your that, can your stomach still handle it? it luckily, it can. Okay. Um, yes, and, and now I, I try to replicate it. In fact, today, uh, my childhood friend Ashish, also from Mumbai, he's coming to stay with me in North Carolina. So I'm going to make uh, fudinani chutney, and we're going to have. Uh, I'm going, I've already made the pav bhaji. I'm making bhel puri. You're making me hungry now. I need to come. <laughs> you can come anytime. I miss my mom's dal bhatshak roti even. Like I, I'd be happy with anything. Yes, yes, dal bhatshak roti, deathbed meal. I mean, yes, the same thing. I mean, just that a good, you know, two edni dal bindanushak. It just goes. It goes to your heart, right? You know, just it's just so it's so comforting. And you mentioned you obviously go to, to Bombay quite a bit still. And it's obviously a very different city than it was when you were growing up. Is there any part of you that doesn't feel as connected anymore? Or do you still feel the same connection? Well, the disconnection I feel with, you know, the, this kind of hatred and bigotry, which I just don't understand. I mean, 
he's this bunch of Gujarati men who'd gang raped this Muslim woman, Belkis Bano, and murdered her infant daughter. You know, they were relieved after 15 years, the Gujarat government just released them and they're being felicitated with garlands and mitais in Gujarat. I just don't understand this new India, this kind of hatred, uh, this, you know, what happened? I mean, it's look, sick. It's sick. when I grew up, yes, there were riots. There were yeah. people who didn't like, you know, in my own family, my grandparents, both my grandfathers were sort of in the RSS or sympathized with them, you know, or voted for the Jensen. This can understand, but it's reached such a crescendo. And a lot of it is television and, um, uh, and social media, WhatsApp, um, you know, the ways in which, you know, people don't talk to each other. They just believe uh, these stories that they get these conspiracy theories and they spread them out. And it's just deeply distressing to me. So this right. to me is is um, something that is, is kind of new and strange in India. Right. Um, but then, you know, there are still, still, you know, I have my friends, uh, the Belpuri is still as good. Um, <laughs> the, the other thing, which is, I, I must say, I'm, I'm really, it, it's harder and harder for me to handle is the, is the pollution. Oh, um, air pollution in Delhi, even in Bombay, the last time I went, it's horrific. And I actually, you know, my throat breaks out in lumps. And actually in 2009, I had lung cancer yeah. unexpectedly. And I never smoked a cigarette in my life. And I was told it might have been those two and a half years I spent in Bombay wow. doing my book where I would take rickshaws all over. And, you know, the air in Indian cities is horrific. And I don't understand how people raise their children there in that kind of air, how old people live there. It really is something, you know, it's one of, again, these challenges that I mentioned in the next 75 years, we have to come together as a country to fight these environmental right. challenges, economic challenges. We can't afford to be split along religious lines. You know, I'm born Indian American. I'm born here. Uh, parents are from Bombay. Uh, my husband and I got a chance to live there for three years with his job. Um, and never having lived there, I've, I've visited, obviously, Nana, Nani, da, 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 the every summer. So I knew India, but getting to live and work in India was a whole separate experience. And going to parts of India my parents never even went to was amazing. Um, but I got to, we were in Delhi for the first year and a half, and I had never gotten so sick so often in my life because, and this was in 2009 to 12 that I was there. Um, and we left in 12, we were in Bangalore for the second half of the stint. And I, now that I have two daughters, I can't imagine living there with them. I just can't. I mean, I love India. I do, mm -hmm. but just the day-to-day -day hardships, you know, even, even with money and support, it's a lot. Exactly. So, you know, I've written about all this in Mexican city. When I right. went back, I went with my two very young sons and they were sick all the time. And, you know, when I'd see Gautama just, you know, he had to put in hospital for dysentery. You know, he was three years old. And, you know, I was thinking, like, well, what the hell am I doing in this country? What am I putting my kids through? Right. Uh, it is fair. And, well, now they've grown up and they go back on their own. And uh, it's, but, you know, the, the public health system, there's no two ways yeah. uh, of putting it. It's, it's terrible. Um, yeah. Uh, you can't drink the water um and it's you know for for children for old people my parents can't go back to india now for trips uh, because they just get sick all the time and it's it's it, 
it's a common experience with um, uh, uh, NRIs that you go back and it's just uh, the toll on, on your personal health can be really too great. Yeah, my parents are going actually next month for five months. I'm a little worried, but <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah. Um, now, you've technically been in New York City longer than you were in Bombay, correct? Yes. So are you right. officially a, a more of a New Yorker now? I am very much a New Yorker. In fact, for the last 10 odd years, I've been writing a book about New York City and immigrants. In okay, that was actually um, my next question. So, yeah. So it's something which I hope I'm coming to kind of an end. And it's like Maximum City. So this book is, I go in all these different worlds of the city, uh, immigrants, politicians, um, uh, drug dealers, the cops. Um, I have a section about Raj Rajaratnam, the um, Sri Lankan hedge fund billionaire, uh, and a group of Indian uh, people in finance like Rajat Gupta, you know, I, I right. know them. And, and uh, then I have this other chapter on the NYPD. Uh, and for six months, I was given exclusive access to the training academy. So I was embedded in the training academy. And I spent a whole summer doing ride-alongs with cops all over the five boroughs for the chapter on, on them. Then there was another chapter where I followed a group of 30 young women, models and actresses, who ran the city's most boutique weed delivery ring. So they sold marijuana to okay. like the good and the great to, you know, Beyonce and Jimmy Kimmel and whatever. And okay. I went along with them as they delivered the weed to their homes. And there were 30 young women, very smart, accomplished women, led by a former Mormon supermodel. So I hung out with them for a couple of years. That's an interesting combination. <laughs> so, a bit of that chapter came out in GQ in 2017, and immediately I sold the movie rights. So now Dakota Johnson is supposed to be playing Amazing. the uh, supermodel. Um, uh, and so, so that's another chapter in my book. Um, so it's been great fun doing the research. And it's there are only two cities that I feel so passionately about, Bombay and New York, that right. I want to write this way about. And like Maximum City, the common frame in all the different chapters is my life, like my coming to New York, to Jackson Heights, right. or Jacobson Heights, as we like to call it, yeah. at 14, growing up there, going to college there, uh, getting married, getting divorced, raising children, going to NYU as an undergrad, and then now like, I'm a professor there. So, so it's my life in the city and some of the people that I've gotten to know over the years and their lives um, and so like Maximum City, I hope to give my readers a portrait of New York as it is today. And my working title for the book, it might not be the official title, is City of the Second Chance. Okay. This is what it gives to immigrants. This is what it came, gave to my parents right. who had left Bombay for Queens in 1977. You know? Yeah. This is what it gives to anyone stepping off the plane from JFK. Yeah. New York will let you in. Then it'll kick you down to the oh. sidewalk and then it'll stretch out a hand and help you back up and they'll kick you down again. And then, you know, so it'll always give totally. you. Totally. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's like the, the craziest relationship and most passionate relationship you've ever been in. Yeah. For exactly. sure. I I've, I've experienced only four years of it when I was in my 20s, but went through four years of love, hate, 
hugs and getting spit out over and over again. And so exactly. I love, I, I am glad you mentioned that because my, my, my next set of questions was, you know, obviously Maximum City, a uh, huge hit, a worldwide known, whether you were going to actually write a book about New York City now because you are, you have been there for so long. And so I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, and when is this coming out? Uh, my editor would like to know. Okay. Uh, so okay. I, it's taken much longer than I thought it would. Okay. But I am, I think I'm coming to an end and then I have a very, very good editor who okay. I am meeting soon. So he will read all the pages I have. I have thousands of pages, literally, that I've written. Wow. And then he'll tell me uh, what uh, else I need to do. Okay. So we'll see. But, uh, you know, hopefully it should be within the next couple of years. Fantastic. (laughs) Fantastic. And then I know also you had mentioned um, your recent book, This Land is Our Land, an Immigrant's Manifesto. Can you talk to me a little bit about that one? I did read Maximum City. I've read it about 10 years ago, so I need to reread it, but I haven't read this one yet. Yeah, so this is a book that came out in 2019. Okay. And it's a much smaller book than uh, Maximum City. Uh, but it is about one topic, which is migration, immigration. And I wrote it because I was outraged by the election of Donald Trump and his casting of immigrants as rapists, parasites, drug dealers, and all over the world is a backlash against migrants. Right. Uh, you know, in India, it's against Bangladeshis. In America, it's against Mexicans. In France, it's against Arabs. It's, and then you know, it got me thinking. Why are people on the move like they are all over the world? Why are Nigerians moving to Britain and why are Guatemalans moving to America? You know, and the book opens with a story that my Dadaji, my grandfather, who was born in rural Gujarat and moved to Nairobi when he was 16 and okay. then um, retired in London. Um, so. My dadaji was sitting in uh, a park in North London in the 1990s, and this elderly British gent comes up to him and wags a finger in his face and says, why are you here? Why don't you go back to your country? And my dadaji, who was a businessman, he says, why am I here? He says to the British guy, he says, well, because you came to my country first, you stole all my gold and my diamonds, so we have come to collect yeah. We are the creditors, he said. We are the creditors. I love that. We are here because you were there. Right. I thought this was such a beautiful you, summation. You started it. <laughs> you came to my country first yeah. and you ripped yeah. it off. You right. know, when the British got to India um, 275 years ago, um, they, uh, the, the India's share of the world economy was 25%. So you know, whatever measures there were of the world economy, India basically had 25, a quarter of the world's GDP. Right. When the British left in 1947, India had 4% of world GDP. Where did all that money go? To London. So when I walk around the British Museum, I see these palaces, I think I should have a room in uh, these yeah. damn palaces. They're yeah. built with my money. Yeah, right. Com- so, completely. So, you know, it's the same thing with Haitians going to France. Um, and in some ways, you know, people say the United States was never a colonial country. Well, the U.S. also ruled the Philippines and, 
you know, some people say Puerto Rico is a colony. Uh, of course, it's part of the U.S. now, but the U.S. has also had interventions in Latin America. At one point, 42% of all the land in Guatemala was owned by one American company, the United Fruit Company. Um, so why are people moving? It's not because they hate their homes or their language or the food or the families. They move. It's incredibly wrenching. When I right. moved, I missed Bombay like an organ of my body. You know, right. when my dadaji left um, all his siblings in rural Gujarat to move to Kenya, he didn't go there because you know he wanted to see lions in the safari parks. He did it because the structure of colonialism left him no choice. He couldn't make a living in his country. So the reasons people move are four. They're colonialism, and then what has replaced it, which is corporate colonialism. So the ways in which Western companies still rip off you know, African countries and Latin American countries, uh, the ways in which you know, they take their minerals and don't pay the taxes that they're owed. Um, so why, when, the, when the countries left, they left their corporations behind. Then the third uh, reason they moved is conflict. Right. Americans went into Iraq and launched an illegal and unnecessary war. A million Iraqis lost their lives. So the whole country, Syrians now uh, you know, are fleeing, uh, Iraqis uh, are fleeing. And I submit that these people who are leaving they have a right to settle in the United States because the U.S. went in there and destroyed their countries. Right. Um, you know, it's the same thing that, and the U.S. is not alone in this. You know, forty yeah. percent of all the national borders on the planet today were made by just two countries, Britain and France. And so, wow, they went in there, they uh, colonized these countries, and when they left, they created these maps which are not realistic. The map between India and Pakistan was created by a British guy named Cyril Radcliffe, who'd never been to India, knew nothing about India. And in 1947, was given six weeks to go to India and draw two lines down a map, which separated India, Pakistan, and what is now Bangladesh. Six and that's, weeks. And that's, it's been that, that same line been the, since. The same border. So I have interviewed people on both sides of the border, people who didn't know which side of the border they would be. And Lahore didn't know until two days after independence whether it would be in India or Pakistan. You know, so all these people who had to leave, they, they, there was a mass ethnic cleansing because of lousy map making. Okay. And the fourth and biggest driver of migration is climate change. Interesting. Uh, so the, uh, the UN uh, estimates that by the middle of the century, one billion people will have to leave their homes because of climate change. Entire nations, like the, the specific nations, like uh, or the Maldives or Mauritius, will be underwater. They will have to leave. Where are they going to go to? And who's responsible? Right. Americans, we Americans are 4% of the world's population, but we put one third of the excess carbon in the atmosphere. And the Europeans, another one third. Right. We built up our industries, our economy by you know polluting as much as we wanted. And now India and China are catching up. But the bulk of the historical emissions come from the Western countries. Yeah. So we screw up the climate, and it's only right that we take in some of these migrants who are fleeing climate change because right. they literally cannot exist on their land. So, you know, so the story was begun in my book, This Land is Our Land, mm -hmm. an immigrants manifesto. It began in anger, like, the hell are these people talking about? The whole debate about immigration is what's in it for the 
for the Western countries. And let's right. look at why people are moving. Let's yeah. Cause it. Let's break it down. But it, it ends in hope because when immigrants move, everyone benefits. The immigrants themselves benefit because it's literally a matter of life and death right. for so many of them. The countries that they move to benefit. Where would America be without immigrants? You know, I mean, the whole country it's is built on immigrants. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, whether it is the uh, Honduran gardener or the Indian doctor or the French chef, we all contribute and build this country, make, right. make it what it is. And uh, all these reams of statistics showing that immigration is good for uh, whether it's the United States or any European country or even India and South Africa. Migration is good. We've always migrated as human beings. It's only in the late 19th century that we had to have something like a passport or a visa. Until right. then, we just up and moved where we felt like it. Right. Um, migration is a human right. Um, and migration is good for the countries that they move from because uh, remittances, those are the money that people send back in money orders in five dollars ten dollars through western union it goes to their families right last year remittances amounted to four times all the foreign aid given by the rich countries to the poor countries so this is people coming to the rich countries and working and sending back money to their families where it goes you know to a mom helping uh, you know, with her hospital bills, a sister for school fees. You know, it, it it's the poor helping the poor. Yeah. Uh, and and I'll tell you just one story from this book. It was yeah. really, you know, just very emotional reporting because I went to Tangier, I went to Spain, I went to Hungary, I went to India, I went to uh, the U.S.-Mexico border in Tijuana to report okay. and look at things. And you know, there was Donald Trump talking about. Ah, these Mexicans, these people coming in, they're rapists, they're, um, they're murderers. And I wanted to, you know, look at, okay, what are they like? So there is actually a wall, but not along the entire 3,000 mile border, but a little stretch of it below San Diego okay. uh, and above Tijuana, right by the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and it ends in a little park, which was built by the Nixon administration. So the park is called Friendship Park. Okay. And it's the only place along the entire border where if your family is on that side, you are on this side, you can meet your family face to face. And it doesn't mean that your family can come here. It just means the Nixon administration, which is a Republican administration, recognized that you know, just out of sheer humanity, yeah. If you've come here and you don't have papers, you should be able to at least meet your family face to face for yes. a little while. So you could meet them, give them a hug, and then they would go back to Mexico, you'd go back to America. So over different administrations, this little picnic ground, Friendship Park, it became more and more restricted, you know, uh, sort of there were restrictions on how long you could meet until under the Trump administration, there's now a thick, ugly industrial mesh fence okay. it's like a it's not barbed wire but it's a very uh, thick fence and you can still meet your family or at least you know when i went in 2019 you could meet your family but only for 10 minutes at a time and on weekends so i spent two weeks there doing some of the most emotional reporting of my career as these families met i saw 
uh, a Mexican uh, construction worker who'd come down all the way from Colorado. And he had been working in America for 17 years. He had left Mexico because his mom was sick and he couldn't make a living in Mexico. Again, part of Mexico's impoverishment is our fault. Right. Uh, we uh, buy their drugs and we sell them guns. So he came here not to rob and to rape, but to work brutally hard in construction. And any money he saves, he sends back to his family, particularly his mom, to keep her alive. So he had heard about this place. And when I met him, for the first time in 17 years, he was seeing his mom again. Oh, my God. I, I watched as he walked to the fence. And mom comes up on the other side. And, you know, he, what would you do if you, what would you say if you were meeting your mom after 17 years? And he couldn't touch her. So he puts his face up to the fence. Mom puts her face up to the fence. And he says, Mama, I I love you. And she says, son, I miss you. And, and then she looks at him and she says, you look too thin. You're not eating enough. You know, it's a thing all moms say. And, you know, he put up his, his palms up to the fence. And the holes in the fence are only big enough to put your pinky finger through. Mm. So he puts his pinky finger through. Mom puts her pinky and their pinkies touch just for a moment. And all along the fence, there are mothers and sons, husbands and wives, best friends, siblings, doing this thing. They call it the pinky kiss. Oh, wow. Because that's they're all they're allowed to do. So if you ever, you know, had a fight with someone in the family and you, you're you not speaking to them, go to Friendship Park and see what happens when the state doesn't allow you to meet your family. See how much hunger there is for family. You know, and when Trump talks about these people don't have family values, my God, they're the exemplar of family values. He's here, this guy, for 17 years, out of family values. He's denying himself. He said, you know, his biggest dream is just to have tacos with his mom. You know, and he and can't we, do that. And we, just take, it, we just take it all for granted. Yeah. Yeah, well, I cannot think, that's a very powerful story, and I cannot think of a more important topic and issues that people should read about right than than this so i think that's fantastic that you were able to put this together and is this land is our land is that from that song yeah from the woody uh, that free song is that um, okay all right your land is my land is, land is my, my land, land from the yeah beautiful, yes uh, anthem of uh, actually and the whole song it's got one word which people normally don't sing which is about migration it says you know, I was walking down the highway, I saw this big high wall and he wasn't allowed to cross that wall. And so that wall, you know, to me, it's, it's about Trump's wall. And he talks about, again, the right to movement. When he wrote right. that song, it was in the Depression in the 1930s. Right. It's still an incredibly relevant song and it's kind of the migrant's anthem worldwide. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. I, I I haven't cried on my podcast, your episode 91, but I almost cried just there. So <laughs> that was quite powerful. Thank you for sharing that story. This Land is Our Land, an immigrant's manifesto is, is out and you can you can get it pretty much anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, great. it's out in, out in paperback. There's an audio book. Uh, great, great. I thought that's, that's amazing. So I just want to end this. I usually end this with what I call a fast round. So just kind of the first thing that comes to your mind. Who would you love to collaborate with that you haven't yet? 
Baz Luhrmann. Okay. The filmmaker who yeah. did Moulin Rouge, he did Elvis. He's basically an Australian Bollywood filmmaker. Got it. He uh, makes these movies which are full of passion and impossible love and, you know, I, and it's got song and dance and um, he almost came into this, uh, signed up to direct this screenplay that I've written. It's uh, a version of Oliver Twist set in Bombay with nine songs set on the local trains. Um, and now Shekhar Gupta signed up to direct it. And okay. the guy who did the music for um, uh, Baz for Moulin Rouge, uh, Marius de Vries, he's doing the music uh, for uh, this film. I mean, you know, as with all films, it's a long road from concept, conception to production, right. but he comes to mind as someone who I'd love to collaborate with. Well, you know, throw it out there in the universe, right? You never know. Who is your favorite Bollywood actor and or Bollywood song of all time? Oh, no question. It it has to be Amitabh Bachchan. You know, okay. I, in Maximum City, I mean, I met a lot of actors in my life and then I worked in Bollywood those two years I was in Bombay. I wrote screenplays for things like Mission Kashmir. Yeah. The only time when I've been starstruck, when I went to uh, Mr. Bachchan's house and he opened the door and he shook my hand and he's got this incredible smile and lots of teeth. And I really felt weak at the knees. Like, this is the guy I've grown up <laughs> yeah. watching, you know, Shole and Divar and Amara yeah. Anthony. And I'm there in, and then I would hang out with him. Uh, he was interested in playing uh, the main role in Mission Kashmir. So we'd go to his house at midnight and stay there for two, three hours. Wow. And, uh, I'd narrate these uh, screenplays to him. So, uh, you know, he has such an incredible presence oh, on screen. Sure. And, and Shah Rukh is also just fantastic. And I, you know, met him a bunch of times. I actually wrote a story for National Geographic on Bollywood. Oh, uh, cool. Came out. So Shah Rukh was on the cover of many of the editions. And and his Shahrukh again is also just fantastic. He's, I hung out with him for a week uh, in Chandigarh when he was shooting Veer Zara, and I was jet lagged and he's an insomniac. So every evening I'd go to his hotel room and he would just like riff, uh, tell these crazy stories about the movie industry and the scripts that have come up to him and the crazy questions that film journalists asked him. And I was on the floor laughing and I told him, you should just do like a stand-up act. That's know? amazing. So, uh, yeah, those are the two best. Well, those, are, those are two pretty solid answers, so. Yeah, and my favorite one is Sarjotevar Chakaraya Dil Tu Bajai and it's from Piafa, the great Oh, yeah. Um, and it's Johnny Walker and singing about a massage. Malish, tail Malish. Yeah. Great song. I mean, love it. I, I won't inflict you with my rendition of it. <laughs> well, you can keep going, keep going. No, I mean, I, I've watched enough, a lot of Bollywood films. I'm, I'm very, pretty well versed uh, in, yeah. in many of them. Great lyrics, great songs. Love it. We'll have to play in the podcast. What yeah. What is your favorite book? Oh, that is a tough question. Now you're asking me to choose uh, between my oh, children. Between your but, babies. You know, first, it it, it doesn't have to be your own book. Any book. Any. What's been your favorite book uh, that you've reread? Right now is Midnight's Children. You okay. Know, it made me want to be a writer. It, okay. It. I. My parents blame it when they meet Salman. It's like, this is the book that got my son away from the diamond business and into your business. Um, 
I read it when I was an undergrad at NYU and I said, my God, you can write this way about Bombay using Hindi words and, you know, these galis and you leave lots of it untranslated. Wow, you can you can write this about Bombay and people will buy this kind of books. So later when I met Salman, decades later, and he yeah. loved my book, uh, I told him this story. So yeah, off the top of my head, I'd have to say Midnight's Children. That's solid, solid answer. And then finally, what would you ultimately like to be known for? I'd like to be known for being a good human being. For, you know, I've not always been a good human being. Uh, there's lots of people that I've hurt in my life. There are um, things I wish I had done better. Um, but I've tried to do my dharma. Uh, as a writer and as a human being, I'd like to be known as a good father. Um, I got married again two years ago and I have a very wonderful wife. I'd like to be a good husband to her. I'd like to be known as someone who was a good son, uh, a citizen of the world. Just, you know, not as shit. I mean, someone who... <laughs> that's uh, a good, that's a, I guess that's a good way to like sum it all up. <laughs> yeah. I could not think of a better way to start the fall season. I hope you guys enjoyed my interview with Mr. Mehta. You can follow him. Check out his website, suketumehta.com. I'll have it in my show notes. And uh, pretty exciting that he's writing a kind of maximum city type of book about New York. I'm excited to read it. As always, you can follow me at TuckeredOutPodcast, TuckeredOutWithAmi.com. Thank you guys for being part of the crew again. Cannot wait to bring you more episodes. Thank you guys for listening. This is Tuckered Out. <laughs>